Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help support shows like this and get access to all kinds of exclusive tools and products and books and city guides and Discord channels and all kinds of really cool stuff, if you want to get all the Sly Flourish stuff, you can become a patron of Sly Flourish. And to the patrons who help support shows like this, Thank you so much for your outstanding support. What do we have to talk about today? So we're going to start off with the Heroes of Kryn playtest material. I, I I don't know if it's been a while. It feels like it's been a while since we saw some playtest material. I can't I can't recall. And uh, this one was pretty interesting because for a few reasons. One is it says, hey, guess what, guys? We're doing Dragonlance stuff, like real honest to God Dragonlance stuff. And it's coming through Wizards of the Coast and they're playtesting things. So that's, you know, that's rare i guess right like i don't think did they do that for i guess they did that kind of for eberron i don't know but anyway they're saying hey there's a new there's a new thing and one of the things that this makes me think about i give my standard pitch right which is that like don't let wizards of the coast determine your happiness with D. and part of the reason for that is that like the rules for D, because of the ogl are pretty open and we're all able to bring lots of third-party products to our game from lots of different sources many of which i i spotlight on this show and we should, in my opinion, and I don't think this is an insult, uh, we should treat the material that's coming out of Wizards of the Coast the same way we think about material coming out of other publishers like Cobalt Press or 2C Gaming or everything else. I think we can hold them all to, the, to, to those standards because Wizards of the Coast, because we kind of, you know, I always feel like we own the game, right? We bought the books. We own the game. We can buy supplements from wherever we want and we can modify it a lot on how we want. The one area where Wizards of the Coast actually has real strength and real power in what they do is with the intellectual property that they hold, particularly the game worlds that they hold, right? And those game worlds include Eberron, and they include Kryn, and they include Dark Sun, and they include Planescape, and they include all these others. And so when when they branch out and and either return to these worlds, like like Ghost of Saltmarsh did with, with Greyhawk... And now we see with here, like that, that's one where like nobody else can write that, right? Nobody else can legally write a supplement about how to run D&D games in Dragonlance. And so I'm, I'm excited to see that, right? Now, it's interesting because they've, they've opened up a lot of other worlds too, right? We have Strixhaven and we have Ravnica and we have Theros, we have Wildmount. So we have these other worlds that didn't really exist before that they've created, right? They've created source books for, and they own the IP to those, many of those too. They don't own for, for Wildmount, but they do for the other three. Ravnica, Ravnica, Theros, Strixhaven are all there. Ra Ravenloft, right? The Domains of Dread. Those are all worlds that, that Watsi, that, that's in the Wizards of the Coast intellectual property basket, right? Those are things that they own. So I'm, I'm happy to see it, but it will be interesting because Kryn is so old, right? I think... Kryn is older, I think, than the Forgotten Realms. So you, instead of having a world that is new or like that they've taken from Magic the Gathering and re repurposed, Dragonlance is really old. And what that means is it brings a lot of it brings a lot of people to kind of look at it and say, well, that I grew up with that, right? And there's some people that are like huge Dragonlance fans. I read the Dragonlance books and I like them. I read the Forgotten Realms books, I like those too. And I also kind of hang on to this stuff with the loose grip. So I'm not I'm not going to be like insulted with choices that they make here. But there are definitely people who are like really into, into the lore of a world. And so when they put out a book like this, it's really hard to please everybody. And we're going to see a lot of complaints because uh, we always see a lot of complaints, right? We, there, there's always lots of complaints. But I'm glad to see them do it because this is something only they can do, right? Like a lot of other things that they do, Books of Dragons, for example, Fizzbands is great and I'm glad they did it, but anybody could have written a big dragon book for 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 D&D, right? Really, anybody could have done that. Only Wizards of the Coast can write a book about Dragonlance. And I think that that's interesting. Anyway, so I'm I'm kind of happy to see that. I'm I'm pretty relaxed about it. Like you know, it's they're not destroying my childhood with what they do here. But boy, you you read stuff and everybody gets mad about anything. So what do they offer? They offer four things. And they're all pretty interesting in this playtest in this in this playtest document. Let me paste this into Twitch so you guys can follow along at home. They offer four things: the Kender, a new a new race, the Kender. A new subclass for the sorcerer called the, the lunar magic or lunar magic subclass, which is really pretty cool. Backgrounds, and this is kind of interesting. A new idea that they have backgrounds, but the backgrounds unlock feats. You start off with a feat for that background, and then a collection of feats, which include the feats that are part of the background, uh, plus some other ones. And 
the interesting thing there is it's the first time that they've had one feat be a prerequisite for another feat. I don't I don't think in the rest of D&D, in the rest of the fifth edition of D&D, they have had feats that are locked like this and that unlock a new a new feat. We're not going to dive too deep into this whole thing. You can you can read and enjoy at home. But I'm going to kind of point out a couple of things that I thought kind of got my attention. So they have this new sort of creating your character uh, segment here. And I think they've included this, this language. They include this language because it's not in the player's handbook. I think this stuff is in the new Mordenkainen's tome or Mordenkainen's Monsters of the Multiverse. I also think this is in like which while beyond the witch light when it talks about new races when it offers races like the Harangon and the fairies and uh, by and large it makes sense to me like the ability score increase thing you know this is this is the new evolution of how wizards of the coast is thinking about doing races for ability scores some people get really upset about it i actually think it's fantastic i'm i i like it for a number of different reasons the idea that basically you get two points that you can put in one score one point that you can put in another or you can put three ones wherever you want i think that's fine right i actually think that the evolution of that is why even have an ability score increase and instead just take your whole point by system and, and knock it up a notch right Languages make sense. Creature type makes sense. Lifespan. At first, I was talking about this with my wife last night. And at first, we were like, are you saying that all creatures basically live a century? But then it very clearly says members of some races, such as dwarves and elves, can live for centuries. A fact noted in their race and description. So if we don't mention it, they live for about 100 years on the, on the, you know, without getting killed by traps. Otherwise, they'll, it'll say in the description. That makes sense. The height and weight thing. I'm probably the last person to like take note of this. But I read it. This is kind of the first time I really read it. It's been in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. It was in Mordenkainen's uh, Monsters of the Multiverse, which I didn't read. This is the first time I really read that. And I was like, is this a new playtest thing? And then I realized, no, they actually have been saying this now a few times. And it's this height and weight thing. Player character, then it, it really throws me off. Like it, I, I was kind of on my Discord chat last night and I was like, somebody explain this to me. I don't get it. Player characters, regardless of race, typically fall into the same ranges of height and weight that humans have in our... If you'd like to determine your character's height and weight randomly, consult the random height and weight table in the player's handbook and choose a row in the table that best represents the build you imagine for your character. So this is like, you know, what does it say and what does it mean and what does it mean for us? I think, I, I think and I hope, and, and whether I hope or not, it doesn't matter, but like the way I'm treating it is that player characters have the same variance of height and weight that humans do within their race. That makes more sense to me than the idea that player characters, regardless of race, typically fall into the same ranges of height and weight that humans have, which tells me that you'd have fairies that are within the same range as humans, and yet they are a small race, right? And it throw, this, what throws me off is like in two paragraphs, I'm like, I don't understand, right? So it says they typically fall into the same ranges of height and weight that humans have, right? This, this little paragraph here. The same ranges of height and weight that humans have in our world. And then in the very next paragraph, says Native of the World Korean, Kendra, diminutive humanoids that look like humans with pointed ears and diverse appearances, okay? And, and then it has size, you are small. I don't, I don't understand, I can't, I can't deconflict these other than to think that what they meant here is that they have a, the, the same variance. Like you can be a short, stout fairy. You can be a tall, thin fairy. But fairies are still small, right? Same way with kenders. You could be a short, stout kender or a tall, thin. Like I get, I get that you would want to have a, a wide range of diverse appearances within each race. But kenders are still generally smaller than humans, right? And loxodon the big elephant people from, from, I don't remember, Ravnica, I think, they're, you would think, bigger. Goliaths are not the same size as a human, right? So when I read this, it reads like they're basically the same range of height and weight, which means a Goliath is the same range of height and weight as a human. Now, there's another part here, which is they're not talking about the whole race in the world. They're talking about you as a character, Right, and this is this is what they got to when they when they are when they describe the ability score thing. Before, when there was like ability scores that were like, well, your strength is plus two and you're plus one to this other thing. That the reason for that was 
getting rid of that and going to this was you're a hero. You're unique in the world, right? And being a unique creature, it's not about statistics. It's not about how likely you are to be one thing or the other. It's about you and you can be whatever you want. So that makes sense. And, and to me, that, that makes sense that like, oh, I'm a hero. I can be what I want. So this feels like it's in the same genre, that same thing. Like you get to decide what you are. You can, you can be what you want. And, and I'm good with that, right? I'm good with that. I love when it talks about like the, you know, Kenders have diverse appearances. This is something that like I've started before, before this kind of made its way into the rule set, I was already thinking like, well, drow, right? Like the original drow were like, they had, they had very light hair and dark skin, all of them. Right. And it was like, why, why is it that elves have these range of diverse appearances or certainly humans do, but drow don't. And in my Eberron game, it was like, no, drow actually look like elves and elves can look like anything, like not anything, but they look, they have the same diverse range of appearances that humans do. And drow was actually a, you know, type of elf, sort of elves that had followed a certain path, but you couldn't see one and go, oh, that's a drow and that's an elf. Right. They, they looked similar and that worked really well in my Eberron game. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. And I think you can do the same thing here that like, you can still look and see, ah, that's a Kender, but the Kender can have as wide a range of appearances as anybody else. But I, but I get thrown off by the player characters, regardless of race, typically fall into the same ranges of height and weight. And I think it's like this, what does same ranges mean? Does that mean variance or does that mean actual fixed numbers? Right. And that, and that doesn't make sense to me. So anyway, whatever that that's something I got hooked on. And I was like, I don't understand how that means. And it doesn't rake the it doesn't wreck the game. Like, you know, it said it in wild beyond the witch light. Right. And we still have a fairy in my wild beyond the witch light group. Who's like that big. Right. So we said, no, that's, that's, that's fine. So Kender, so they have the new race, the Kender, and everyone's kind of thinking about this. And, and the big discussion about the Kender is that people hate, some people really dislike the Kender because it was a, a race built for, players who loved to grief their fellow players right and this one they have specifically wired things into it to make it not the kind of race that would let you grief your players i.e are you stealing are you stealing all the time and the change in the lore is no they don't steal all the time they just have this weird knack of like having stuff all the time and people assume that they're stealing it right and this Kender Ace is the thing. Like at third level, you possess a magical ability to pull an item out of your bag or container, right? And you, it's sort of like, oh yeah, I've got that. So it's kind of a fun ability, right? But people, people, right? This spurred by the curiosity and love for trinkets and curios, keepsakes, Kender's pouches will magically filled with these objects. No one knows where these objects come from and not even the Kender. This has been many Kender to be mislabeled as thieves, right? But they're not actually thieves or they don't have to be. They could be, but they're probably not. Then they have this taunt ability, and I don't know why, but the taunt ability bothers me more than the other stuff, and no one else seems to be talking about it, which is you have a supernatural ability. It says starts at level one. Your supernatural ability to, to, to home in on the creature's raw emotions. As a bonus action, you can unleash a barrage of insults, 60 feet that can hear and understand you. DC is eight plus proficiency plus con. It has disadvantage on attack rolls until the start of your next turn. What kind of bothers me about this is that, again, if you have a boss monster or a creature who is dependent upon lots of attacks, this makes all of those attacks at disadvantage for everybody, for all creatures that are being attacked by it. And the saving throw could be low unless the Kender uh, is boosting charisma, right? And you can use it a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and you regain all on long rest. But that, that's still a fair number of times, right? That's a, that's a good number of times that you can do this. It starts at two and it goes up to what, six at, at high levels. That taunt feels really powerful to me. It's certainly an ability that you use throughout your, your thing. I think this wouldn't be I think this wouldn't be underpowered if you said the next attack, right? You know, like the next attack that they do is a disadvantage. I think that would be fine instead of all attacks, right? The problem with all attacks is it scales. That means this, the more powerful the monster you're casting on, the worse this power is. And that, that, always, that always bothers me. Anyway, the subclass, the lunar magic one is pretty interesting. Again, more, I've seen more discussion about it and like, is it overpowered and stuff like that? And like, I don't know. I don't know if it's overpowered, but it's pretty cool, which is like each new day you can decide, are you a full moon, new moon or crescent moon? And it gives you access to like whole new level, you know, layers of, of spells. I think, I think that's, that's really neat. And then you have these like lunar boons, different, different levels. You get different things that kind of boost up. There was one in here. I think it was in here. Maybe it's in one of the other ones where, yeah, I think it's in the Knights of Solemna uh, has abilities. I thought, so, you know, that's pretty cool. Then backgrounds, you know, backgrounds you have, this is the first time 
that they're offering feet as a as a background, right? And you have the Knights of Solemna start off with a feat, but it's one particular feat. So this is interesting because it's not like a human where you can go and you, you get a free feat. It's like you get one particular feat and the feat is pretty restricted in what it does. So that's kind of an interesting feature. Like it kind of makes a background matter a lot more because you're getting this feat tied in here. Does it make this one more powerful than a normal background? Maybe, I don't know, right? I mean, you certainly seem to get more Kind of, maybe? So let's just say not true. They did it in Strixhaven. Did they, is that in, that's right. Strixhaven does have feats, backgrounds that has feats. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm trying to remember what the play test did. There was something, oh, that's right. In the play test of Strixhaven, they added the school, right? And the school was like another layer of mechanics. And they ended up getting rid of that and instead had backgrounds that tied you to a school. And that one had like major things. I remember that. Yeah. So you're, you're correct. Salicious is correct. Yeah. So, but it's still an interesting sort of feature, right? Now, the, one of the arguments about it is that the feat that you get as a Knight of Solemna gives you proficiencies that you probably have if you were a melee class, class anyway, like access to um, martial weapons and medium armor. So Lost Goldfish says, do you, do you get Death Ward? I don't know. The Sorcerer level, you get it at fifth. When does Death Ward normally kick in? I thought I thought that's right. Don't you normally get third level spell? Is Death Ward a third level spell? I'm pretty sure it's a third level spell. And you get access to that at fifth level. That seems like it's right. I don't think they're getting it earlier than anybody else. Is Death Ward fourth level? I don't know. Anyway, so that's sort of interesting. Uh, the Mage of High Sorcery is a cool background. Again, you get a feat that sort of ties you to being a Mage of High Sorcery, an Initiate of High Sorcery, and then later you actually pick which one of the three schools. Yeah, Death Ward is fourth, so I guess they do get Death Ward earlier than they do get Death Ward earlier than everybody else. That's interesting. Is that the only one? I wonder if that's an error. It could be an error. So that was, that's that's kind of interesting. And I'm not like a huge, I've, again, I've read the Dragonlance books, but I'm not like a huge Dragonlance nerd. So I don't know if like, oh, this is not accurate to how, you know, Mages of High Sorcery are supposed to be. But it's kind of cool. And then they have the feats. And the thing about the interesting of the feats is that this is, they have prerequisites that require another feat. So like the Adept of Black Robes, fourth level High Sorcery Initiate feat. Does that mean that basically you can't, you can't be a, can you take the feats? Let's see. So initiative high sorcery. Let's look at that. Initiative high sorcery. Prerequisite. Apprentice of high sorcery. Is there an apprentice feat? Or is that the background? I don't see where there's an apprentice of high sorcery feat. So that, that confuses me. I get confused easily. So and I kind of understand what that is. is it, does that tell me? I don't know if that is saying you must be a, you must have this background in order to get this feat. That's kind of interesting that nobody could get the feat unless you have the background, which I mean, makes sense, right? So that's kind of neat. And then they have what, what I thought was kind of cool, which is a generic divinely favored feat. God has chosen you to carry the spark of divine power. You learn the thaumaturgy cantrip and one first level spell based on the alignment of your character as specified in the alignment spells table. You can cast a chosen spell once. So this gives you, it's a straight feat that gives you access to a first level spell, right? And if you're evil, you can choose warlock or wizard and you can always choose wizard and evil. You can choose warlock. Good. You can choose cleric neutral. You can use druid. I guess my only problem with this is this is like the, the one feat dip to get shield, right? Like everybody loves shield. And the idea that you can, you know, dip into this and, and everyone gets shield. I'm not sure I'm crazy about that. Because it feels like a, a spell that's easy to, or it feels like a feat that's easy to just min-max, right? Like, I'm just going to pick that one spell that's so good, and I'm going to focus on that. And really, I think it is. Like, I don't, is there any spell better than shield at first level? I can't think of one, right? And I think everybody would want it. Like, shield is so good. Everybody would want it. Now, is it worth a feat? Maybe not. Like that's a that's an expensive cost to get one spell. I've seen people though that dip into whole classes. They'll take they'll they'll basically cut themselves down one whole level in order to get. Anyway, neat stuff, neat sort of designs. Does this does this show us the, where they're what they're thinking about when it comes to the you know D and D five point five in a couple of years? Maybe maybe a little bit. I don't know. I'm kind of happy to see them experiment and try things out. This is the place to do it. These these unearthed Arcana documents is a good way to do it. We know that these change. 
right? I've seen them change pretty significantly. I think that if if you draw the line, I think this says that we're about six months away, maybe four to six months away from a Dragonlance book, right? So that could be kind of fun and interesting. Uh, let's do a product spotlight. Today, we're going to talk about a couple of things. The first is a small book by my friend, Craig M.T. Black from M.T. Black Games, who really got his uh, name out there writing lots of really awesome products for the DMs Guild and then wrote for Wizards of the Coast on Descent into Avernus and now has branched out, now has branched out into writing products for Drive-Thru RPG. And he already has uh, the Book of Wondrous Magic Volume 1, which I've spotlighted on this show before. And now he has the Book of Magic, the Book of Wondrous Magic Volume 2. So these are short books. They are five bucks of four dollars, right? Four dollar PDF. So it's interesting because on like one side, you have the Vault of Magic by Kobold Press, which I think is like at least I think it's a twenty dollar PDF, right? For more than four or five times as expensive as this. This is a smaller book that says here's just a handful of new stuff that you could drop in your game. Magic items are one of those interesting things because you can have as many of them as you want, right? As they're all they can all be unique. And anytime you want to drop like new interesting magic items in your game, you can sort of just grab one of these books and then roll on that on that table and come up with something interesting. So it's a nice magic books of magic items are a nice way to just continually expand the game and i think there's no upper limit it's sort of like monster books you can always add more monsters right there's no limit to the number of monsters that you can that you can put out there maps of locations same sort of thing right dyson's got a thousand maps so you know that's really that's really cool so it is a short book 62 pages and it's a small form factor so this is kind of a digest sized page count so 62 pages is actually high because of the it's it's a fast 62 pages i should say like you could think of it more like a 30 a 30 page book right given the font size and text size and everything like that it is almost legible on a phone like i can read it on my phone i, I said like huh this small form factor does that mean i could read it on my phone and you can just make it out on a phone without having to format the page or anything like that so that's really cool is it better than a two column layout i don't know right i kind of like a two column layout but yeah, neither here nor there. How many items are there in this book? I don't know. I should have researched that before I started previewing it. But a fair number, right? A good, a good, a good amount. Uh, hundred magic items. It says right there. There are a hundred magic items described in this book, covering all rarity levels, right? So here they are alphabetically in rarity, right? And then, of course, what I think every book of magic items should have is a random table, because what I'm not going to do is read your entire book of magic items and commit them to memory. But I'll roll on it, right? Found, oh, I'd like to drop one of these uncommon items, you know? Uh, I have a pro phone, so yeah, I can I can make it out on my big ass my big ass iPhone. It's a good question, you know. So if I want to drop one of these guys in, I can just drop it in, and I might, you know. So this doesn't have what the, and I I, I wouldn't expect it to what the Vault of Magic has for Cobalt Press, which is all of the normal magic items plus this new stuff in one book, so you can you can roll on it and it's really hard that's that's the tricky bit is when you have new books of magic items how do you integrate them with all of the other magic items and i think like one thing you could do is just say hey i'm going to roll on an uncommon magic item and i'm going to pick one of the books to do it from because i want to see something interesting the one thing i would do because i'm I, i'm i'm always a little apprehensive about uh magic items i think it's worth rolling on magic items before they show up at the table I think you want to take a look at them. And even with the stuff that's that Wizards of the Coast is providing, like even the stuff in the DMG, there are some uncommon magic items that are really, really powerful for what they are. And then there's some that really, really suck. So it's it's worth rolling during your prep, which is why we have step eight. I think it's the eighth step is roll for treasure, right? Or, or come up with magic items, you know? And I think it's worth doing that during prep and checking a couple and be like, yeah, that's cool. I'm going to drop that in. Right. And I typically, I typically do that. Although you see my Numenera game, I don't. So really good list of items all the way. Uncommon, rare, very rare, legendary, good item descriptions, fun stuff. I love the, the design. It's a very lightweight design, very easy to read and neat, neat stuff. I, I dig this. I dig this quite a bit. Bracers of Colossus. Leather, supple leather wrist guards are studded with malachites. You, you gain these benefits while wearing them. Strength score is 25. Wow. This is a very rare bracer. You count as a size larger when determining your carrying capacity. So you get, do you get physically big? I guess. Your melee attacks deal double damage to objects and structures. That's pretty cool, right? You're, you're big, big Colossus. I think that's better. Is that, 
That's better than the giant, the giant strength ones, right? That's kind of neat. Let's pick a, let's pick another one. Divers Dirk, uncommon magic item, weapon as a dull iron blade, cross guard inscribed with nautical patterns. I love that it's got like a little bit of flavor, right? Like it actually describes not just like it's plus one thing. You gain a plus one bonus to attack and damage rolls made with this magic weapon. In addition, while holding the dagger in your hand, you triple the amount of time you can hold your breath. That's cool, right? It's not pure water breathing. It doesn't give you a swim speed. It probably could, right? I don't think giving a swim speed is totally out of hand. But it's kind of a neat, you know, a neat little additional flavor to, to an item. Let's pick another one here. Horn of Instant Revival. Rare, very rare item. Small silver trumpet gets us a slender tube, which flares out at one end and is engraved when you use an action to blow the mouthpiece of Deep Clarion. Blast emerges a creature you choose within 10 feet has died in the last minute, returns to life with one hit point. The effect can't return to life a creature that has died of old age nor restore any menacing body parts. So seven charges in each expense. See, so wow, you can you can resurrect people. I like that you just like blare this horn into their face to wake them out of up out of death. That's kind of funny. Pretty neat. I mean, that's powerful, right? Like you can resurrect people. Does it take an action? Like I said, when you use an action, so you can resurrect people during a battle. Go, and it brings them up. That's pretty powerful. Do one more. Radilla's silver tongue, rare, wondrous item. Silver pen is shaped like a tongue. Ugh. It comes with a delicate necklace. While wearing this item, you have the advantage on charisma checks, provided you make your argument in rhyming couplets. Oh boy. Give that to your role play character, your role play player. If you fail to speak in rhyme while making a charisma check, you have disadvantage on the roll and take 3d4 psychic. Wow, that's like an out of game, you know, screw with people. You know, woof, I don't know about that one. Rod of levitation, uncommon. Rod is made of polished wyvern bone bound with copper bands. I like the flavor. The flavor is really good. While holding the item, you can use an action to move yourself vertically up to 20 feet. On subsequent rounds, you can use your action use your action for anything else so i guess it lets you levitate all the time that's pretty powerful right? you can always levitate i mean there's some characters that can fly right and race they can fly so that's not it's not crazy overpowered pretty interesting that'd be a fun item you probably put that in the later tier one stage when when levitate and flight isn't going to completely change things very cool anyway nice 62 page book short straightforward four box really good rate very well edited uh i highly recommend it you can find the link to the book in the in the show notes below very cool uh, my friend Teos, who goes by AlphaStream on uh, Twitch and has a blog, alphastream.org, had a good article and video where he talks about the work that he did for Dwarven Forge. If you're not familiar with Dwarven Forge, they are the maker of what I consider to be the best tabletop terrain in the industry. They make beautiful, very usable, really cool 3D tabletop terrain. I've been playing with Dwarven Forge for like 15 years. I've got sets of it all over my house. I really like this stuff. And Teos uh, also really likes this stuff and worked for the company to do a, a few interesting adventures that they've put together. Why I wanted to spotlight this is I know about the tremendous amount of work that Teos and the Dwarven Forge team did that they did on these adventures and they're free you can go get them right now for free uh rango of arc says was he paid in terrain no i don't think so i think he would no he was paid paid right he was he was given real money for it now did he turn right around and take that money and put it into dwarven forge quite possibly i know that's how i work i have a part of my paycheck withheld every month to just go to dwarven forge so, because it's not cheap, I'll tell you, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff and really, really cool. It is not cheap. This is the high end of your, of your, of your tabletop accessory stuff. So, yeah, so he's a few things. And one is, I want to promote a few things. One is, you should check out alphastream.org, Teos' blog. You should subscribe to his newsletter, which he has, right? There's a, there's a subscribe to alphastream.org. Very smart dude. Really good stuff. Subscribe to his newsletter. And also, you should check out his YouTube channel. I didn't even know he really had a YouTube channel. He does, right? I'm gonna paste. I'm gonna paste links to all of this stuff below because you should follow Teos. He is a brilliant dude, and he uh, did this video where he talks about his work. Look at his interesting three-panel arrangement. I do like one thing I'll say about his arrangement that I like is now he is looking properly in the direction of the thing. I have the problem that my window is on the wrong side of the screen, so it always looks like I'm looking the other direction when the screen's on the left. Sorry about that. So he talks about the work that he did on these and, and links, links to them, talks about how to go get these adventures. And we're going to talk about the adventures. So there are basically three of these things that you can get. There's the most recent Wildlands adventure, 
that has come out. I'm going to paste the link here in the chat. You will find all the links for all this stuff is in the show notes below. And like, look, the layout is, is beautiful layout, really interesting art, right? It's been edited. It's been written, edited, laid out, and play tested. I know that the Dwarven Forge team and others have play tested these adventures. So one of the things is like, well, obviously they built this around their terrain. So you'll see a lot of pictures of their terrain in here. However, you don't need their terrain to enjoy these adventures. They just, that shows you what it generally looks like. And you can draw this, right? You can still set all this up. It's no different than if you had a map of, of a location. You don't need Dwarven Forge in order to enjoy the adventures, right? You can look at like the layout, but you could draw this out, right? You could take a, a dry erase mat or whatever and draw this out and still get that same you know, still run the same encounter. It's very sort of encounter driven and dungeon crawl based is, is what you'll see in these. And, you know, but, but still can, you know, be very useful for lots of different things in your game. So really, really neat stuff. So that, so there's the wildlands one. There's the caves of the, the caverns deep one, which is 102 pages so far for just the beginnings of it, right? And it just covers some of the encounters uh, that existed. So one of the things with each Dwarven Forge Kickstarter, they arrange things by encounter. You sort of bought an encounter room, right? And the caverns deep and, and, and dungeon of doom, they're built all around those builds. But again, doesn't really matter. You can you can run this for your own for your own game. You can see like the level of artwork. The, the artwork is all kind of photos of Dwarven Forge stuff, which really is a different a different style of art. This is the Caverns Deep one. Did I already paste the Caverns Deep? I did not. Again, all the links for these are in the show notes below and they're all free, right? These are lost, lost leaders for them. They, they are showing you this stuff so that you'll get interested in Bison Dwarven Forge, but they are really well done. Really cool stuff, right? They talk about where they're set. They talk about what you do. They have full encounters in here. They also include brand new monsters, right? Monsters that are designed specifically for this encounter. And that's where we get to sort of the third, the third of this, which is the monstrous Dungeon of Doom, the monstrous Dungeon of Doom book, 408 pages, huge. It's like, I think it's a gigabyte, right? Cause it's got so much art in it. It's a gigabyte in size. It is a massive, massive book. But think about it. it's, this is the equivalent of a campaign source book. A huge book, 400 pages, right? Huge book, right? This is their, their, their cover art for it, right? Really cool, really cool cover art. And that's the back cover. I think they originally intended to print it. I don't think they ever did because it turns out printing a 400 page book is really full color, full color book. I wonder if they do. I wonder if they've ever made one. They probably have a couple. They probably have that. They probably have that uh, uh, a couple different places. So this covers all of the chambers of the Dungeon of Doom. Again, the Dungeon of Doom Kickstarter had different rooms that they built out that you could you could buy in their terrain. But again, you can you could draw all this, right? You could you can just because it's using Dwarven Forge in their examples doesn't mean you have to use Dwarven Forge when you're running it. And and that's what I think makes this so powerful. It's like it's a fully laid out, very beautifully put together, well written, play tested, and edited, you know, adventure. This one's like a, a huge dungeon crawl, right? completely available for free. So there's no reason not to get it. No, no reason not to download it. No reason not to sit and back and read it and enjoy it. Uh, the other thing is this one is scaled. Uh, Taos and I have talked about this a lot. It's scaled for all tiers. So it's got all of these different encounters. And if an encounter grabs you and you like it, uh, you can scale it for the different tiers. So you can have a tier one, tier two, tier three, or tier four. I think if you read a lot of it, it talks about, you know, what kinds of, yeah, so yeah, average party level, right? Maybe it goes up to 10, right? It talks about the different DCs and everything like that. So check it out. Really cool stuff. Subscribe to, to Teos's newsletter. Subscribe to his YouTube channel. All this is free. It's all free stuff and you're going to get it and it's going to help your D&D game. Subscribe to his newsletter. Subscribe to his YouTube channel and pick up really all three of these adventures that are available from Dwarven Forge written by Teos that are all completely free. Check them out, right? Really, really good stuff. This is this is easily a $20 PDF, maybe $30 PDF given its huge size that they're giving away for free. One DM tip that I've been thinking about and I've been toying with, I, I, I don't think it is solid enough yet to do like a tip video or write an article about, but it's an idea I've been playing around with and I'm curious to get people's take on it. 
some I, I did this when I was running when I was running a particular monster in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And it's a monster that is intended to face you at level two. And it was a very powerful monster that it does two attacks with like plus six or plus seven to hit, something like that. And does average of 10 damage, 3d6, 10 damage per hit, which is 20 points of damage at level two, which means one to two hits will take a character out and did. When I ran it, it knocked this particular monster, knocked a character out with a single hit. It rolled well, rolled a 13, and down the character went. And what I realized is like, well, I don't have to multi-attack if I don't want to, right? Like the monster might only throw one attack out there instead of two. And my thought was a, an interesting way to sort of, this is not quite a dial. It's sort of a, a dial you could turn. You know, I talk about the four dials of monster difficulty, right? I talk about number of monsters, the hit points of those monsters, the number of attacks the monster gets, and the amount of damage the monster does, right? Those are four different dials you can tweak. And that number of attack dial, I think I think there's a setting. I think there's a, a, a toggle switch on there you can flip. It's a dial, 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 little toggle switch. And the toggle switch is one of the ways to set up those attacks is you only make the second attack if you miss with the first, right? So what if this particular monster was attacking and he threw out an attack and he missed, right? Well, he gets two attacks. What if he, what if he threw out that second attack, right? What if he decided only on the miss does he make that second attack? And it's a way to kind of cap the amount of total damage that a monster can do. This monster would never do more than 10, but it'd be a lot more likely to do 10. It'd be a lot more likely to do something than nothing, right? I actually had this same creature who does have this multiple attack, attack two different targets, right? And he has a dagger and an offhand. So I had him like attack with one and then use a dagger. And that was really funny. It, it, it worked out very well in the battle. It did knock a guy out in a single hit and I felt bad. Particularly because I killed that same player's character three days earlier in a different game. He's like, are you going to kill me again in three days? He was very good. He was a very nice guy. So I, I'm, I'm toying with this idea. Like, what if you kind of have an optional rule in your head that a, a creature will only make the second attack if the first one misses? And that's a way to, to cap the amount of damage down to only one hit's worth, but means that it's very likely to do that amount of damage. So I think 13th Age has a style like this. It has sort of an on a miss. It has like an, on, an even, on an odd or even miss or something like this. And I'm just saying on a miss, the creature gets another attack. And you could do that to beef up a creature. If you have a creature that only gets one attack and you're like, how lame is that creature if it misses? You could say he gets a second attack if he misses with the first. Likewise, you could take a creature that's multi-attack and say he will only actually make the multi-attack if that's a creature that's really powerful, like in this case against second level characters. You could drop it down slightly and say he only makes that second attack if he misses with the first. So it's a, I think it's a little trick we can keep in our heads. It is a trick that I think is projected to players. They will notice that this is going on. They're very aware of how many attacks a creature is getting. And they'll be like, how come he only hit us once last time? But he had, you know, or how come he gets a second attack when he missed? But this other time he hit the first time and he didn't make a second attack. And you're like, he, you know, he didn't, he decided not to. So that's a way to kind of, you know, would that carry through to higher multi-attack numbers? Sure. You know, you might say like, I mean, I don't, you know, hydras and stuff like that. I don't know if you if you do it on something like that, but you know, I don't know. You have to toy with it. I'm I'm thinking about mostly in tier one, but like I'll, I'll tell you another creature where this works well. It's like the thug. The thug stat block is a really really solid mean stat block, right? For a CR one half, it's a really really powerful creature, and it gets two attacks that do five damage each. If you run that against like level one characters, it's really hard. But you might have a thug as a boss or something like that, who only makes a second attack if his first attack misses, right? So I think I think that that could work. Always make both, but misses one. So if it hits with the first, auto miss with the, you know, yeah. I mean that 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 works if you're rolling behind a screen. I don't roll behind a screen. I like to roll. So I think I would only make the attack, and he could miss with the second, right? I would give him a second attack. He might miss with the second one too, but he had double the chance. So, so you only attack if they keep if they miss. Yeah. So that's anyway. It's something I'm toying with. I think it's a nice simple little tool. I think it's a way to add a little bit of control. It's like a a, a top cap. For monsters, it's a way to like increase and make a monster either more or less threatening depending on how many attacks it gets, right? A ghoul might get a second attack only if it misses with the first, right? Ghouls typically only get one attack. So I think that that is an interesting way to go. So here's an RPG industry tip. In my YouTube feed, a video came along done by, oh, I forget the fellow's name. I'm a terrible human being. By Steve. So Steve at Lunch Break Heroes did a video let's click, called Making Money in the RPG Industry. Definitely going to get 
attention, right? And when I saw it, I kind of, I made, I made grimaces, right? I made facial grimaces when I saw that. Cause I was like, Oh, is this like clickbaity? It's a little bit of a clickbaity title, you know, and it's such a hard topic, right? Like this is a really hard topic. And I'm like, I'm going to watch it because I'm in the industry and I'm going to watch it because I'm interested in looking at all sides of this. But already I'm like, uh, I'm going in all grumbly. And I watched it and I was like, that's a pretty good video, right? Like that one, I think, touches on the topic pretty well. I liked it. So I thought, you know, I am, if somebody asked me like, how do you, you know, hey, Mike, how do you get into the industry? I'm like, I don't know. Right. Like I've got some thoughts about it. I've got a few, when people ask me, I get emails from people that say, Hey, I'd like to know more about how to get involved in the industry. And now I have like a list of like, here's a few videos that you can watch. This would be one of the videos that I would add, because I think the advice that, that he offers, I think that the advice that Steve offers in this video are, is, is pretty sound advice. It, it, It does have a little bit of the, you know, if you do this one day, you'll be able to pull it in. He actually goes into numbers. He goes into his numbers and he talks about the fact that in, Last year, I guess, right? Lunch Break Heroes. So this is kind of interesting. This is a good measure. Made $112,000, right? That he, he pulled in $112,000 US uh, getting involved in this. And if you look at what he has created, it seems like it's really in two big areas. I don't think he, I don't know if he broke it down. I can't remember if he broke down like where he, you know, where that breaks down into like book sales versus Patreon versus like advertisement on YouTube. But he clearly, he has a 20,000 subscriber YouTube channel. He has 2,000, more than 2,000 Patreon patrons on Patreon, which is hot. That's a fair amount. And he sells a lot of products, right? And so all of that together kind of got him to this. And he's hoping to double that. I think like his goal, yeah, his goal for this year is to double that basically to 250,000, right? Here's the, here's the, the link. Now, I'm really, really, really apprehensive about talking about the amount of money anybody can make in this industry because it is really, really, really hard and not replicatable, right? You can't really look at one path in here and figure out what you're going to do. And Steve himself, when I talked to him, I I actually, I'm in a channel with him and other YouTube creators, and we were talking about other things. And I was saying like, when it comes to YouTube, I have no idea what advice to offer people to build up their YouTube channel. I have a, I'm very happy with how my YouTube, how YouTube has been growing. It's been growing very well, right? And that growth has definitely led into better revenue for Sly Flourish through Patreon mostly, but also through everything else, right? And I can't tell you how I got there, right? I can tell you that like I shot lots of videos, right? I have lots of videos. I do these weekly shows. I do all these other videos. I do tip videos, right? I decided I was going to do these short tip videos, you know, and I put out a fair amount of content, right? Two to three hours of content a week. But like, mine is not the most polished stuff that's out there. And I I just, I can't tell people like, go do that. Because I know other people that are doing that, that have hardly any followers at all, right? They're putting out really, really good stuff. And yeah, so Barkeep Springs, how to get struck by lightning. So when I brought this up in the channel and I, I, I brought up like, hey, you know, other YouTube creators, we have a bunch of YouTube creators here. You know, Bob World Builder is there. Steve is there. You know, a bunch of different YouTube creators are in this channel. And I said, like, what advice do you offer people to like, how do you get to your first thousand followers on YouTube? And then your next 10,000 followers, how do you do that? And he said, well, the problem is, you know, you do all these things and then hopefully you get lucky and it works out, but no one wants to hear that luck is a factor. And I was like, yeah. So that's something he doesn't really talk about in the video is like, you can do all this stuff and not have it succeed, right? It's really, really hard. The path that he lays out here, I think is about as good as I've seen. The one thing that I would add that he doesn't, and I talked to him about this and he doesn't agree with my, with my philosophy on this is I think you should also set up a newsletter, right? I think newsletters are a really, really powerful way to reach your audience. And if you can do it, it's great. That, that is one where like, well, that's great for Mike Shea. And the reason why that works well for me is I already write weekly articles. It's easy for me to take my weekly articles and turn them into a weekly newsletter. I turned on an RSS feed and off it went, right? It has changed how I've written those articles. And now I think I, I figured this out last week and it was really humbling or it was really like shook me a bit is that an article that I post on Sly Flourish gets one fifth of the readers that I get as a newsletter. Five times more people are reading it as a newsletter than are reading it as a blog article. And it started as a blog, right? Boy, I wish I'd started that newsletter 10 years ago, right? Like I, I, it, I've only had it going for about a year. 
And boy, I wish I had done that 10 years ago. So I, I'm a big proponent of like, you know, if you want to, if you want to build an audience, instead of worrying about your Twitter followers, instead of worrying about any of the platforms, set up your own platform as a news email newsletter. That is a platform you can own. It's you control it and uh, build that up. But that means writing. It means writing a weekly article. It means writing something. And so that's something that he doesn't talk about in this video because Steve has not, I think has a newsletter and hasn't had a lot of success with it. And I think it's easy to not have success with a newsletter. And again, I, I think you got to write content people want to read, right? Write, help, help somebody, help people, right? All of your stuff should help people, right? This is, this is when you're making content, it should help people. Anyway, I thought it was a really good video. I recommend it. It's in the show notes below. And it's probably going to be a video when people say, how do you make it? I'm going to say, well, this is no, no path is guaranteed to succeed, right? All of them require a fair bit of luck. But check this, you know, this video has, I think, some good advice. The only thing I would add is do a newsletter. Yeah, uh, Empty Black has also been shouting out my newsletter and his newsletter. Empty Black is awesome. It was funny because I, I read Empty Black. Empty Black does a really good newsletter and he does like these lists of 10. Like here are 10 things that have happened in the industry. Fantastic newsletter. And anytime I'm not in it now, I'm like, I must work harder like one day. And he's like, I can't just link to you every week. <laughs> and I'm like, sure you can. Right? So fun stuff. Let's do some patron questions. This day's flown by. This hour has flown by. James M. I DM a party of six players. Once a party goes over four, you have mentioned that the power level of the party grows exponentially. Is there a way to assign some sort of value to each party member to help with encounter building and CR? That's a very good question. The power level you know, exponentially is a little, it is exponential, but it's like exponential, like 1.1, right? It's not, it's not this crazy, like when you add your fifth, it, you know, it's two to the fifth. It's not quite that extreme, but it does go up on a curve. It's it's not a linear. It's not a linear growth when you add new characters. It's slightly. It's a curved. It is exponential, but it's just a shallow exponential curve, right? The reality is, I don't bother to account for the exponent. I don't. I don't. I I, I treat it linearly, right? And it's close enough to linear that you're probably okay. So I still recommend the lazy encounter benchmark, the deadly encounter benchmark. And I will link to the deadly encounter benchmark in the show notes below. But basically I say, if you want to balance a group, if you want to try to figure out, so you don't, don't try to balance an encounter. Instead, use monsters that make sense. Use the type and monsters of the type and number of monsters that make sense for the situation first. Build the situation from the story. Decide what makes sense for the number of monsters and the types of monsters based on the story, not based on encounter building or combat encounter building, and then figure out if it's deadly, just to be sure, right? Is this, is this going to be inadvertently deadly? It's okay to have a deadly battle if you know it's going to be deadly or potentially deadly, but you don't want it to surprise you. And the way to do that is you figure out if the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than one quarter of the sum total of character levels, then it's potentially deadly. So you add up all of the monster challenge ratings, divide it by four, Sorry, add up all the monster challenge ratings and add up all the character levels. Divide the character levels, divide, divide the character levels by four. If the total monster challenge rating is greater than that number, it's potentially deadly. That's for tier one. That's for first through fourth level characters. For fifth and above, it's half of character level. Take all the character levels, divide it in half. That tells you your total monster challenge rating before it's potentially deadly, right? Use that benchmark. So that's in the show notes, that, that little bit of math. I, that one already, because you're adding together all the character levels, it's accounting for the fact that you have five and six characters, right? If you had a fifth character, that adds a whole number of other. And it's a fair amount, right? Like that, that when you add a whole set of character levels to it, you, you are kind you're not, you're not, it's still not exponential growth, but it is still, it's still accounting for the fact. One of the reasons why I like this model so much is add all the character levels divided by four or add all the character levels divided by two. The reason I like that so much is that it accounts for multiple level characters, characters of different levels and different amounts, right? Do we have four characters of fifth level? Do we have, you know, three characters that are fourth level and one character that's seventh level, right? It accounts for that because you're dividing all together. So I like that. It also accounts for multiple monsters of different challenge ratings, right? So that, that system is flexible, both in the, the amount of levels and the amount of challenge ratings and the number of monsters. It's all in that single equation, which is why I like that equation so much. It's about as simple as I can make it. And it's about as accurate as anything else you're going to find, because truth is challenge rating is not very accurate. 
So that's what I recommend for that. Sweet Action says, what is the comprehensive lazy DM process for taking PC backstory and weaving it into a published or homebrew campaign to create a meaningful character arc for each PC alongside the plot of the campaign itself? You, I'm going to highlight that word lazy because what you describe is not lazy. The lazy process, so there's a process and you might go into a lot of work on this, right? The lazy process is keep note of the character's backgrounds and review the character's stuff at the beginning of each session so you can see what things you can add into your session that helps reinforce the characters and their backgrounds and goals, right? It's a session by session approach. It does not let you create these long plot arcs or these little threads. That's not lazy. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, right? At that, I will tell you. So I just talked all about Dwarven Forge and how much I love Dwarven Forge terrain, right? Or maps or this beautiful stuff. It is far more worth your time to build interesting arcs in your campaign around the characters and their backgrounds than almost anything else you can do, right? Because the characters matter more to the players than anything else. So any of the work that you're doing that you're driving into that area is very well spent. That's a high value activity. There's so many low value, customizing a monster, building a monster from scratch, I'm, I'm, I'm hot take, right? Here's your hot take for, you know, the more it's still early. Here's your hot take. Building a monster from scratch is so less valuable than building a, an arc for your character right? Building a story arc that ties into your character. Thinking about the relationships between the, the boss monster and the characters and backgrounds and stuff. Wait, and then, and then, and then reskinning a monster stat block, far better, far better approach, right? In my opinion, right? And in my experience that like you are far, that's going to have a much bigger impact. People are going to enjoy that much more because it means something to their character. So the lazy process is step one, right? And there's a reason why it's step one. There's nothing more important than putting your characters first and foremost in your mind before you do anything else in your prep. That's why it's step one. But the lazy process is you you review the characters and you say, in today's game, is there anything from these characters that I can drop in? Are there secrets and clues? Are there story threads? Are there monsters? Are there locations? Are there anything I can do that tie to the characters, right? That's the lazy approach. The, the deeper approach, which is probably worthwhile, certainly more worthwhile than campaign building, world building, right? People are like, oh, I should really think about all the diverse religions that my thing has in the 10,000 year history. No one cares, right? My friend, Teos, my friend Enrique Bertrand says this, right? No one, no one cares about your crazy stuff. They care about themselves. So spending time building out the religion or the background or the world that is tied to the background of one of the characters, that's very valuable. Building it for in general, not not really valuable in my again my opinions right These are just my just like my opinion man all right so there isn't this you know that isn't the lazy approach but it is a good approach and i i think so what you know how do you do that you know keeping track of it is number one writing this stuff down talking to the players about their characters saving their background i put it in my notion notebook right i've got character pages for every one of the characters and you read it right i think that really helps and read that and then think about what arc you're going to have. I, I, another, some other lazy, some lazy tricks, make sure that the main NPCs are tied to the backgrounds of the characters. Is it their, you know, is their brother thought dead? And it turns out their brother is actually one of the bosses, right? Big deal. You know, be careful with that because you don't want to, you don't want to take agency away. But, you know, I had one, one of my, in, in one of the first fifth edition games that campaigns I ran, my wife's character, cousin was one of the one of the main villains, right? She was she had this blood lineage that went back and tied to one of the villains. And I just added that in, right? The, the villain was a villain, but I'm like, oh, that's your cousin, right? So that's just a good way, tie, tying things together. Those, those sort of interpersonal connections are a really good way to go. Uh, sweet action, that's a very good question. V says, I might change from online sessions to in-person ones. As I have only ever run online D&D, what would be some tips to help with this transition? That is a very good question. And it's interesting as some of us are starting to bring players back to our physical table. What is that like, right? What are we, what are we doing there? And I wrote an article this past week called Tracking Combat, where I talk about all of the different approaches. This breaks down. This is from another patron of Slifler. She said, like, what? I just, I'm kind of brand new what should I be doing to run combat, right? And I broke it down by both what you can do online and what you can do in person. So this article, I think, has a good description of the kinds of things that you're going to want to track, the physical things you're going to want to do when you're running in person. And it's like, how do you handle maps? How do you handle initiative? You know, do you use books or not? And 
you know, using as little as you need in order to get the story, I think is really good. But things like, you know, how do you, you know, what kind of tools can you use for maps, right? Tip one, have snacks, right? To have snacks, take breaks, right? Those are good ones. I'm a big fan of the Paizo flip mat, right? I love the Paizo flip mat. It is a dry erasable mat. It's like 12 or $13 on Amazon. It's a whiteboard you can put in front of you. The other thing that I love is to put a big acrylic sheet over the top of it. You can get these like three foot by four foot acrylic sheets at like Home Depot. They're like 20 or 30 bucks. And you put it on top and then use like sticky tack to keep it in place. And it builds this perfectly smooth surface that you can write on in front of everybody. Really, really nice. So I have a few articles and I will link to, I will link to articles that help answer this question uh, in the show notes below. So the tips are mostly about tools, right? I think the rest of the game is the rest of the game. And I think what you will find is your ability to connect with body language is so much higher, right? And, and I miss that. I think we, we miss that in online play. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's social time versus game time. Evil John brings up that, you know, you keep in mind that you can have more social time. That said, like, it's easier to deal with the social time because it's, it's not, there's no lag. You don't have people that are like completely talking away, talking over each other, but still take breaks. Right. But most of what I think, what comes to my mind are, are what, what are the tools that you're going to use? And I, so I think I have like the, let's see if I can find it. Yeah. So I have the tools of the lazy dungeon master uh, is an article. I will link to this one below. And this, these tools focus on physical tools, things that you would use at a physical game game table, right? Index cards, the flip mat, a lazy DM cheat sheet, the lazy DMs workbook, of course, NPC portrait cards, monster manual, right? These are all the physical tools that you want. This is different than the stuff you would use online. But I think that this talks about all the kinds of things I think are really valuable in a, in a game you're playing in person. This has been tested. I have tested this at many conventions, right? I, I designed this set of tools as a portable kit. You can pack all this up in a bag and off you go to the game, to, to, your, to your game shop or wherever. So I'll, I'll paste to this, but I think that that is, a, I think that that is a useful, a useful set. Broccoli says, what's your approach for handing out magic items? How often do you do it? And do you mainly stick the one specified in module or do you usually choose your own? It's a good question. We just talked about magic items, right? We just talked about Empty Black's latest book and magic items. I like to hand out one permanent magic item every session on the roughly every session or every adventure. And my general approach is I would, I would generally like every character to have a permanent magic item, a useful permanent magic item every five-ish levels. By the time the characters get to fifth level, everybody should have an interesting magic item. That's my, that's my general rule of thumb. And the way to do that generally is offer up one per adventure. Cause you figure they're leveling up roughly once per adventure. And if they're getting a magic item, then by the time that you hit fourth or fifth level, then generally speaking, everybody's got one. But I don't, I don't think you have to be too limiting. I think, I think having like one permanent magic item per session that one of the characters can use is a pretty handy way to go. And if you haven't given out a lot, I think finding the hoard of treasure where three characters get magic items in once, I think that that's fine, right? I think you could have like no, if this, if it doesn't make sense for the story to drop a bunch of magic items in, then they might find that horde that the trolls had, right? Like, like, like the, like the dwarves in, in the Hobbit, right? They find, they find the trolls, they can get a turn of a stone. They find a horde and like, what? There's like three crazy powerful magic swords, right? I think Glamdring is in there. Uh, Glamdring Foehammer, which isn't that Foehammer is Gandalf's sword. The sword that the dwarf gets, I forget its name and Sting, right? All three of those are in one, you know, Sting is in there, but what's, what's the... What's the sword that the dwarf lord gets? He has a sword too. It's got a really cool name. The goblin cleaver. Goblin cleaver is the name is the 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 common name, but I forget what it's you know goblin cleaver's name something else. But the three people get three powerful magic swords in that one loot. I think that's fine if like the assumption is they haven't gotten any magic items in a while, so you can do that. But generally speaking, I try to give one magic item per character per five levels on the average. And then you, you could do some random ones. So they'll probably pick up some other tchotchkes and doodads, like good magic items. And then of course I like to drop relics with, I, I drop relics often. I will, I will almost always try to have a couple of relics show up in every adventure so that there's these single use magic items that do one powerful spell one time. Orcus. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's Orcus Goblin Cleaver. I think you're right. Correct. Evil John. Evil John, once again, backing up the show. Uh, that topic is also covered in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. There's uh, like what kind of items and how do you mix random with Fi fixed fixed items so like put items in that you know will be useful to the characters 
and then mix it with some random items. Alex G. Oh, this is a nice one. What's the best adventure you have ever taken part in? The one that stands out most in my mind, very likely the best adventure I've ever played in. The best, the best adventure I ever played in was Invasion of the Planet of Tarasks, written by James Intercasso and run by James Intercasso at Winter Fantasy, I think three years ago, two or three years ago. I lose track because of COVID. And it was a 20th level one-shot game. He told us, bring your 20th level characters there. And I loved my character. He was a 20th level champion fighter who just wanted to behead things. And he managed to behead a lot of things. And that was great, including uh, Tarask. The notable things that happened to my character is I, I beheaded a Tarask. I beheaded Halister Blackcloak. And I got to ride a flying Tarask off into the sunset of an alien world filled with Tarasks. That's pretty you know, pretty hard to beat that. James was awesome as a DM, as you imagine, as awesome as he is as a writer and a creator and an editor and everything else. He is also equally awesome as a uh, DM. He was working, you know, in a 20th level game, it's really hard to work with the characters instead of against the characters because they're so powerful, but he did and gave us all opportunities to shine. And it was a fantastic adventure. It's the best adventure I've ever played in. And it helped that I was like with my friends and my wife and we all had a really good time. So yeah, that was, that was excellent. And Invasion of the Planet of Tarasks is a DM guild adventure. Invasion of the Planet of Tarasks is a DM $3 DM guild adventure uh, built for uh, Rango of Heart has it, has it linked. $3 adventure, fantastic adventure. And if you want to see what a, what, a, what a 20th level adventure should be like, check that one out because it is really, really great. So what is your advice for approaching st a structured social encounter? I don't think of it as structure. I, I try to get into the head of the NPCs. Who are the characters? Who are the NPCs that are in the scene? What do they want? And what do they behave like? And how will they react to the conversation that goes on with the characters? If I was going to add structure, and then I go with that, and we do roles, and you don't have like, you don't have a role of like a fail, it means the conversation is over. Sometimes it makes sense that the conversation be over on one failure. Other times, though, you'd say, no, no, the, the, the other times you might say that like a bad role just kind of makes them a little angrier. You could do a clock from, from like a uh, Blades in the Dark style clock of saying like, you know, this, you have two clocks, your success clock and your failure clock. Like, have you pissed them off enough that they don't want to deal with you anymore? Maybe there, it takes four failures to do that, right? And try to think about like, why? Why would it take three or four failures? And then how many successes do you need, right? These two different clocks. You could do that. I don't even know that you need that because you might say like if they do particularly well, if their argument is well laid out, if they if they hook on something that the character or that the that the NPC they're dealing with, why should you wait, right? So I, I don't I don't like the idea of social of structured social encounters. I think that they are free flowing events, and that what the characters say and how they do is going to change that event and it's going to flex in lots of ways. And I, I think trying to build it like a skill challenge of like so many successes or so, so many failures, you could do it that way, but I would make those very dynamic. And I would try to say like, why, why does it take three failures, right? Why does it take four successes? Like what are the arguments you're making? So, but generally I would just get in the heads of the characters, right? And, and of the NPCs, get in the heads of the NPCs, What's their background? What do they want? And how are they going to react to what the character just said? And with recognizing that like the little bit of fluctuation you're adding on there is rolling a die. And if they roll well, that, you know, you did well. Or, you know, I think, I think that there's, there's lots of different ways to do that. And I have an article called 1D20 Shades of Grey, where I talk about how you can, instead of having a role be a pure failure, or pure success, that the role could have variance, right? And like how well they roll could change things. Like, you know, that, that to me is like a better structure is instead of having a fixed DC, have them roll a charisma check and see how that roll went. And if it's kind of in the middle, then the conversation continues. If it was really good, then, oh, that was really good. If it gets bad, then you really get grumpy. How did your Blades in the Dark experience affect your recent City of Arches heist adventure? I'll be honest, it, I don't think it did very much. So my, my City of Arches heist adventure that I ran, I have a video where I was preparing it. I was going to talk about this on the show, so I'll talk about it right now. 
it was a little bit more like a dungeon crawl than a heist. There was a, definitely a heist element to it. There was a there was a mark. There was something they had to go steal or get or acquire, which was this this scroll. There were guards that were there. There was a situation, and there were people moving around. Now you can. There are certain things like you can. The, the two big components that I think you can take from Blades of the Dark and drop into a DD game that work well are flashbacks. The idea that you could roll a skill check or roll something and have that mean that you changed something in the past. That is something you could add. And then the other one is like the clocks, right? The idea of like so many successes or so many failures before an event happens. So like how, how many bad events have to occur before the guards get alerted, right? I didn't even really add those two components into my, into my heist adventure. I just, I, I had a, I, you know, in, in my circumstance, I had like a, an airship that was in a cavern. And it was a dungeon crawl. It was a two-session event. And the first session, they had to get to the airship. And that was more like a dungeon crawl, right? And then they got there. And then it was like, how are they going to break in? What are they going to do? And they, and they came up with a plan. And they followed through that plan. And they, they ended up facing a fair number of bad guys at once. And it was really hard. And one character got killed, right? And, but they got the item. They got out. And, and, and it worked out. So I think the main, you know, so what, like, how is a heist different? I think, I think there's another question uh, that comes up later on, which we'll probably cover in another time, which was how does a heist differ from like a dungeon crawl? And, and, you know, it might not, it depends on whether you're thinking holistically about the dungeon and you have like this, here's an item that's in the dungeon and here are the guards that are guarding it. And here's the circumstances uh, that are going on, the circumstances of like who's moving where and, and how is it operating? What are the different ways that a character can get in there to get it? The what are different ways the characters can get it? Are there multiple ways the characters can get it? And then what circumstances change during? Are there complications? Does something happen during it that changes that changes things? I think that to me is like a heisty style. And really you can take that heist model and apply it to lots of different types of adventures. So we call it a heist, but it doesn't always have to be a heist. It's more, more of that idea of like, the you know planning and execution are two separate steps. There are multiple options for the plan, things like that. So I you know yeah. So so did I? How did Blades? I mean, I'd been running heist before Blades, right? And I have sort of in my mind maybe this is why I had trouble running Blades is because I already have like an idea of how heists work and how I run heist in D and D. And then if I apply that to Blades, it doesn't really work as well. So that might have been one of the tricks. But I think the two big things I would take from Blades in the Dark that I think are really powerful: the idea of flashbacks that characters can affect things currently by saying they did something in the past. That's really cool. And then clocks: this idea of a sequential clock, clock of ticks of you know ranges of success and steps to succeed or fail rather than one pure succeed or fail. I think those are very powerful tools. I think that is it for the show today. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me on this early morning show. Always a good time. Always appreciate having all the people in the chat. And I want to thank you for watching the show. If you enjoyed the show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos here on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. Thank you all very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D. &D.